You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning, church. This morning we will be in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. I have to use my iPad so I can get nice big words here and read. (laughs) Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. If I have not met you yet, my name is Andrew, and we are uh, jumping right back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Um, And I I recently was at a basketball game, which is funny to say because I'm at a basketball game like every day of my life right now. Some of you parents in here know that drill. <laughs> You're there too. Um, but I, I was at as a youth basketball game, and as the players were running up and down the court, I began to notice uh, there was one kid who kept looking up into the stands after everything they did. You know, whether it was good or bad, it was like every time they were just like doing that thing where they're looking up, and you could tell like they're looking for their parents, and they're looking for some guidance, some direction, and this just kept going and going and going until finally the coach of the team called a timeout, pulled the player over, and said, hey, your coach is right here. Keep your eyes on me. And I was watching this play out and kind of laughing because I've been one of those parents in the stands who's had some better directions for my kids, you know, than the coach. But I was laughing because the message in that moment was really clear. And I think it's the message that actually applies to us today. Because many of us are running through life. And we are looking for any kind of word, direction, affirmation, uh, someone to tell us that we're doing okay, someone to tell us that we're on track and we're not behind, someone to tell us that we're keeping up with everybody else, someone to tell us that our phone is still on and it's ringing. (laughs) But we're all looking for someone to cue off of. And the whole time, Jesus is inviting us to keep our eyes fixed on him. 
to find our rest, to find our pace, to find life in him. But we're so easily distracted. We're so easily swayed. We're so easily divided in heart. That's why there's, there's a passage in Psalm 86. That's one I come back to quite often because I need it. I need the reminder. You've probably heard me use this in many other sermons before, and I keep coming back to it. And it says this, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. It's this reminder that the ways of the Lord are good, but we need that reminder to unite our hearts to fear his name. The passage that we find ourselves in this morning, it reminds us that a divided kingdom will not stand. Neither will a divided heart. And as Jesus is again questioned for doing the miraculous, he reminds those around him that the kingdom of God is at hand and the true king is here. And he also invites that to follow him, to follow Jesus, means to follow him fully, not half-heartedly. And so as we begin, I just want to unite our hearts to fear his name and I just want to pray for us as we start this morning. Father, we come before you asking you to teach us your ways, that we could walk in your your truth. Unite our hearts, Lord, to fear your name. Help us to pause in these moments, any distractions, any divisions, any fractures within our heart that want to consume our thoughts. Would you quiet them? Would you still them that we could hear from you? Would your spirit speak to us, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us in these moments, Lord, that we may be united to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, where we pick up is in verse 14 of chapter 11. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Now, if you've been walking with us a little bit as we've been going through this biographical account of the life of Jesus, you know that the last couple weeks, uh, we stepped into a moment where Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray how to begin with this reverence for God, to, to respond to him, to bring our requests to him, and to pray that he would make us ready for the days ahead. That we have a good and gracious father who, uh, much like earthly fathers want to give good gifts to their kids, we have a heavenly father who gives us an even greater gift than his spirit that resides within us. And instantly we go from this teaching on prayer to now we're seeing Jesus in action. He's casting out a demon. We see this account in both Matthew and Mark as they walk through the life of Jesus. In Matthew's account, in chapter 12, we see that the man is both blind and mute. Here, Luke just records that this man was unable to speak until after Jesus casts out the demon. Now, the display here of Jesus' power, again, remember, he has come announcing the kingdom and he's showing the effects 
of the rightful ruler walking through the earth, pushing back on the darkness. And so he encounters somebody who's, who's oppressed by a demon, unable to speak. Now, why would this seem so impressive when so many other people were casting out demons in Jesus' day? Why did this particular one catch people's attention? Well, many believed that there was either certain words that you had to use to cast out a demon, certain kind of incantations or rituals uh, that were handed down that people would kind of pray over people. Others believed that in order to cast out a demon, you needed to know its name so you could call it out by name. Now, the problem was if the demon was unable to speak, if it was mute, then you could not know the name of that demon to cast it out. But Jesus shows up, and the power and his presence is enough that when he speaks, not even knowing that demon's name, it's gone. That's who Jesus is. And so when he acts, people take notice. And so we see here, very simply, we see the action of Jesus, And the action of Jesus was that Jesus cast out a demon. This creates a reaction in people. And the reaction of the people was that the people marveled. The people marveled. Now, the word here, marveled, is one that we see used by Luke a lot. He talks around people marveling at kind of the spectacular ways in which Jesus' birth was pronounced, marveling at the ways in which Jesus teaches with authority, marveling at his actions and the miraculous that seems to always surround him. And this word, to marvel, means to be astonished, to wonder, but it also carries with it a low level of skepticism. Because you're witnessing something that seems too good to be true. You don't have a category for it. I I don't know where to put this in. I I don't know if this is really happening or not. Uh, is Is this real? Can I trust what I'm seeing with my eyes? As one author states, this is the human attitude of astonishment at the numinous uh, spiritual mysteries is not yet faith. At the most, it is only a preliminary stage to faith or in psychological terms, the impulse which may awaken faith, but which may also give rise to doubt. So as the people are marveling, they've seen the action of Jesus, now they're reacting to Jesus, and we're seeing that this reaction places them balancing on a beam, that they can either fall into faith in Jesus, or they can fall into further doubt. And for me, that seems to be where we find ourselves quite a bit, wondering, can I really trust these words of this first century rabbi? Can I really lean into his teachings? Is he really who he said he is? Could he possibly have conquered the grave and in so doing offer life to me everlasting? Can that really be real or is it all some myth, some fairy tale that is too good to be true and therefore I should just chuck it all? The people are are marveling, teetering on whether to be all in or to be all out. And so Luke, seeing the action of Jesus, now he begins to identify the reaction of the people. Verse 15, what do they react with? But some of them said, this is the people are marveling, and then some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Some in the crowd 
They're watching Jesus cast this demon out, and they begin to explain it away. The only way that he could be doing this, it's not the work of God. This is the work of Satan himself. This is the work of Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is not a name that we talk around frequently. I don't think there's anyone in here by the name of Beelzebub. And if you are here, then we will pray for you. And I'm sorry, that's a rough, rough go of things. But Beelzebub, the, the meaning of that name is the, the dwelling place, the prince of the dwelling place. Often there's a, a kind of a mix-up that will happen with the word Beelzebub, uh, where it will, or Beelzebul, where it will become Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies or Prince of the Flies. Either way, this name had become synonymous with Satan. That's when you said Beelzebul, you were talking around Satan, who was considered the prince of demons. And so they are accusing Jesus here. The only way he's able to do this is because he is working with Satan and by the power of Satan. So that's one reaction we have. Those who are trying to explain this away, who are like, yeah, uh, this Jesus, he's actually in cahoots with Satan, and that's how he's doing these things. While others, what did they do? Others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, we're going to see this conversation continues on, and people are going to continue to seek a sign, and Jesus is going to talk around the sign of Jonah. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But here, we see that the people are in awe. They're amazed. They're astonished, but they still want more. They want to believe what they're seeing, but they just need just a little bit more proof would be helpful. And then, and then I will believe that you are who you say you are. And to me, this is the reaction I often run into of people who are exploring Jesus. They like him. They, they find Jesus uh, really, uh, like, they're drawn to him. They find his teachings fascinating. Uh, they're not sure what to do with the miraculous actions that he does. Uh, the resurrection really proves to be problematic because can someone really come back from the dead? And so they begin to explore Jesus, and they're like, well, if he could just show up a little bit more in my life, if he could just show me a sign, if he could just uh, send somebody to tell me that he's real, and then someone shows up and is like, hey, he's real. God told me to show up and tell you. They're like, if he could just send maybe one more person to tell me that, right? Like, we do this all the time where we're chasing just one more affirmation, one more thing to prove that he really is who he says he is. Then maybe we would believe. See, the danger here too, though, is that sometimes we're like, well, I'm going to believe just enough that I'll add Jesus into my life. But what we're going to see from the actions, the reactions, and the implications of who Jesus is, he's not asking to be an add-on. He's asking that you are all consumed by him, that you see him as the pattern of life that you are going to follow with all of who you are. And so we're to trust him. And I know in saying that, we're just to trust him. That can sound too simplistic. And sometimes we're like, does that mean that we just, we don't have to think about it. We just trust him and we can just kind of park our brains. And this is what I love about scripture. Remember how we're to love God? We're to love God with the entirety of our being. Heart, soul, mind, strength. You don't have to park your brain. No, we can love Jesus with the entirety of our intellect. We can pursue him with our mind. We can search the scriptures, the word that he has given us and, and spoken to us. We can ask questions. We can raise our doubts. We can bring them before him. And what I have continued to find is that he, Jesus, holds up to all of our scrutiny, all of our wondering, all of our doubt. He's not afraid of it. 
So in this moment, we see people are pressing Jesus. They've seen his actions. They want more of who he is, and it led to their reactions, and now Jesus is going to show them the implications of witnessing his work, of experiencing him. You've, you've now seen me. There's no neutrality to what you do next. So he comes back to them, verse 17, after they're asking these questions and they kept testing him for a sign. And he says, verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Here again, we see that Jesus knows their thoughts. He's perceiving what's happening in their hearts as they're surrounding him and their minds as they're thinking through their questions, as they're, they're pushing back either in conversations with each other or just as they're reacting to what's happening. But what does Jesus do? Instead of retreating in that moment, like, I don't think this crowd is quite with me. No, he engages. He pushes in. He begins to not only answer their objections, but to show them the importance and the implications of a right understanding of who he is. He's like, okay, so you, you think I'm doing this by the power of Satan. Well, if I'm acting by the power of Satan, by the power of the devil, then my actions are coming against the kingdom of Satan. And how will this kingdom stand if I'm attacking him? if I'm undercutting him all the time. Uh, tell me how that works out and how that plays out. Because Jesus here, he's pointing to the obvious. He's saying this is to work against oneself. He's saying you've seen this in divided kingdoms. You've seen this in divided households. Dads, you have experienced this. When your kids come in and they ask you if they can do something, eat something, go somewhere, watch something, and you wisely respond, what did your mom say? <laughs> because you know a divided house will fall, right? And just as a divided home will fall, a divided kingdom will not stand because it's actively working against itself. See, often the implications of, of brokenness that we see in, in, in larger systems, even in homes, in a broken and divided home, that, that brokenness began when one person had a broken and divided heart, and that begins to work itself out in the home. Some of you in this room know you can be your own worst enemy when you self-sabotage your own actions. You know the very real danger of having a divided heart. How many of you have had an argument with yourself when the alarm is going off in the morning? Just five more minutes. Just five more minutes, right? How many of you have said, you know what, I'm giving up sugar, and then someone brings cookies, and you're like, tomorrow. I'm giving up sugar tomorrow, right? Those of you who know your workaholics, you're like, I'm just going to answer one more email. That's it. I'm just going to take one more phone call. That's, that's it. Those of you who are prone to, to laziness, I'm just going to scroll for five more minutes. That's, that's it, which turns into 10, which turns into 20. And you're like, how did it already become nighttime? For those of you who are prone to push the line of sobriety, one more drink won't hurt. I'm good. I can handle it. 
For those of you prone to lust, I'm just doing a simple image search. There's nothing sinister about it, and you know exactly what you're doing. For those of you prone to gossip, well, if I just bring up this subject, maybe they'll say something, and then I can just tell one more story. For those of you who crave attention, I'm just going to post one more thing, because I just need a few more likes today so I know someone's paying attention. And on and on and on. The kingdom of our heart, once divided, is so easy to conquer. This is why the Apostle Paul, he like scripts this out for us in Romans seven fifteen. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. What's Paul wrestling with here? What's he going back and forth with? He's going back and forth with this war of the wills within our souls, this civil war of our our souls. And to me, this is one of Paul's most relatable passages because so many of us, we sit in this room and we want to follow Jesus in this moment and then we walk outside and we realize it's hard because we feel the pull of our flesh, our will, our way against God's. So how can we possibly unite our heart to follow Jesus? We don't have the ability to carry that out. And that's why Paul continues in 721. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many of you have felt that? I want to do the right thing, and I feel the pressure to do the wrong thing so immensely in this moment, and you have just this small sliver of doing it, right? This is where that prayer of, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name, comes in real handy. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And I love this. He's bringing it to this climax here of like, I can't do this on my own. Who is going to rescue me? Who is going to save me? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a rescuer. We have a redeemer. Jesus has come that our hearts may be united to him. And by uniting our hearts to Jesus, he unites us to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why uh, one of our values here at Crossroads that we talk about all the time is that we are family, that we are underneath the banner and the bond of Jesus that unites us together. But when we place other things ahead of Jesus, they act as a wedge that begins to divide us. This is why Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthian church with all of its quarrels, its, its factions, its fractures, its divisions, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What's the cause of unity there? It's the name of Jesus that we come under. The name of Jesus is to be the banner under which we unite, not divide. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a brief time out here to jump into a different stream, Okay. We're going to come back to this, but there's a moment here that I just, I just, 
I want to hit this because we're going to hit this a lot this year in particular. Uh, I don't know if you know this. We're entering into an election year. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. And so, so that doesn't feel awkward and so that we don't feel the, the tension and the stress of that. I just want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them who you're going to be voting for this year. Right? <laughs> we're just going to, we're going to start there. No. Every time we step into this, there's the possibility of contention, division, anger, factions, hostility, right? And that's just within these walls. I'm not even talking about outside. That can be in this room. I watched families divide. I watched friendships implode over this very conversation. And so let me be clear on this, okay? And we're not going to stay here long. If you're a citizen of this country, then you have the immense privilege to vote and participate in shaping the leaders and the laws of this land. Jeremiah reminds us that we as God's people are to seek the good of the city. And I believe you, as a follower of Jesus, you should vote. You should participate and influence where you can. And you should be involved. You should use the voice that God has given you. You should shine bright as a light for his kingdom. But in doing so, let us remember that while we are citizens of the United States of America, and we should not be ashamed of that, we're citizens of the United States of America. As followers of Jesus, our ultimate allegiance is to our citizenship in heaven. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And I believe as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to show a different way forward that is rooted in kingdom principles. That we can disagree, but still do that well. We can be both courageous and kind. Courage. Courageous is our, our stand for truth. Kindness is our application of it. So as we step into this year, uh, let us not lose sight of Jesus and his kingdom. Let us keep him at the forefront of all of our actions, all of our postings, all of our words, all of our disagreements. Let's not step into those without his spirit guiding us and leading us. Let's not set him aside and say, for this moment, I'm just this. No, 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 if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a kingdom person in whatever sphere you are entering into. So let us unite our hearts to fear his name above all. All right, that's my aside. We're going to come back. All right, back to our passage. Jesus is pointing out the flaws of some of the reactions that are coming from the people. He's cast out this demon in power. And, and people are saying, well, you've done this by Satan's hand. And, and he's like, no, no, that, that's a divided kingdom. And now he's going to turn this and, and begin asking them some questions, which Jesus, you know, is just so good at. Verse 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Again, what's Jesus kind of reflecting back and mirroring back to them in this moment? You're saying that I'm casting out demons by Satan himself. Okay? Well, all these other people who are exercising demons, because there was others that were doing this. We ran into somebody already in Luke uh, chapter 9, verses 49 through 50. Right? The disciples see someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they're like, what's this guy doing? Is this okay? And Jesus is like, hey, hey, let him do his thing. Let him do his thing. 
We see in Acts, there's some others who try and uh, cast out demons in the name of Jesus, in the name of Paul, but they don't have the authority to do that and it doesn't go well for them. But other people were, were doing this. And so what Jesus is pointing out in this moment is that some of these people are people you trust. Some of these people are in your family. Some of these people you've known for a long time. How are they doing this? By what power are they casting out demons? And Jesus knows that if they answer that question, right, they're going to reveal their bias. They're just looking for another reason to push against Jesus being Messiah and Lord in their life. But Jesus isn't done answering their questions, and he's not done showing us the implications of who he is. So verse 20, he continues on. He says, but it, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, Jesus, he's gone through all these if statements, if, if. Now he gives us this if-then statement, if. Just imagine if my actions are actually the finger of God, then know this, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's opening the crowd up to the possibility and ultimately to the reality that the true source of his power is God. If this is the finger of God, the kingdom of God is here. Now, what's Jesus saying here, and why would it have gotten the attention of those listening? Jesus uses this phrase, if it is by the, the finger of God. Now, I just want to encourage you this. Whenever you're reading through a passage and there's something that like, is intriguing or a phrase that you either like, kind of have this vague memory of or you're like, that sounds like that might mean something, sit with that. Uh, chew on that. Uh, chase that down. Ask yourself, where have I heard that before? And if you have any kind of reference Bible, study Bible, oftentimes if a phrase has been used, uh, they're going to give you a little letter next to it that's going to take you to some other verses that will show you where that has been used before. And so if we're reading along in this and we're like, finger of God, that feels significant, it's going to take us, if we look at that little letter, it's going to take us all the way back to the Exodus, in a moment where God is in the process of delivering his people by bringing about various plagues uh, to, to Egypt to, to free his people. And Pharaoh, in this moment, he has magicians who are trying to mimic and copy what God is doing and sending. And at, at different moments, they're successful. They can kind of do a, a, a cheap imitation of the miracles that God's doing, and that gives Pharaoh enough to be like, okay, okay, we can reproduce this. Uh, this isn't really that big a deal. But this moment, where suddenly the finger of God is, is showing itself, is a, is a little different. We read in Exodus 8.18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats. But they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians, the sorcerers, the conjurers, said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So even in this moment, there's a recognition by Pharaoh's practitioners, his magicians, that there's something different happening that we cannot replicate. There is a bigger source of power that is moving right now and confronting us that we are powerless against. It's the finger of God. It's the act of God, the power of God at work. Other places that we see this phrase used, Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Ten Commandments written down by the very finger of God, the power of God, the Spirit of God moving. Okay? And what's Jesus saying? 
if this action of casting out the demon is by the finger of God, He's equating his actions to the finger of God. Psalm uh, 8.3, we see this phrase, it's used slightly different, but it says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, right? We look at the heavens, we stand in awe. When we see a beautiful sunset, we just stare at this magnificent radiance of color and just imagine that's not the work of God's arm or his full might, it's just his fingers, right? That's, that's what he's capable of. And Jesus in this moment, by, by saying, if this is the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of God is here. What he's tying his work, his actions back to, is to the exodus, the unique work of God. This is a theme that we have seen uh, over and over throughout Luke's gospel. That Jesus is leading a truer and greater exodus. One in which death will not simply pass over, but where death will be ultimately defeated that the Spirit of God will reside in the hearts of his people and all who follow him. So Jesus is saying, understand the implications of what you've just witnessed. If this is the finger of God, and what he's really saying is, this is the finger of God, therefore, this is the kingdom of God in your presence. He's showing his hand here of who he is and the power that he contains and what he's capable of. And so Jesus, again, is saying, if, if, if it's the finger of God that casts out demons, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I love that, again, he's not avoiding uh, the skeptics and the cynics. No, he's meeting them right where they are. And he's letting them know that what he is proclaiming uh, about the kingdom is what he's been proclaiming from the beginning of his ministry. I mean, do you remember what he read when he opened the scroll back in Luke 4 when he went into that synagogue? The words that he read in 4.18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to bring good news. Freedom to the captive and to the oppressed. Sight to the blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He is announcing that the kingdom of God is here. And how does he finish after he, he reads all that? Luke 4.21, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is who I am. I am the Lord's anointed come to set the captive free. To bring liberty to the oppressed, sight to the blind to proclaim the Lord's favor. And so Jesus, in this moment, casting out the mute demon, he is once again coming against the powers of darkness and bringing light. One who could not speak can now speak in freedom because of the actions of Christ. He is rescuing the oppressed. He is setting captives free. But he's not done. See, the implications of the kingdom coming are many, as are the implications of his power. Jesus continues on, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. Jesus just takes this a step further. He says, this, if this is the finger of God, the kingdom of God is here, let me just remind you of what's taking place. There's a strong man, he's fully armed, and that strong man is, is Satan. He's guarding the way of this world. He's trying to keep all people under his rule and his reign, under his yoke of slavery. 
However, what's Jesus saying here? But when one stronger than he attacks him. Again, Jesus is like, I'm here. I'm the stronger one. I have come, and the enemy knows it. That's why when he shows up and there's, there's people possessed by demons, they begin to say, uh, what, what would you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? They start to panic because they know that in him is light and the darkness can't overcome that. Jesus is stronger and when he comes, he defeats Satan. To me, this is such good news because too many of us are stuck in our own minds believing that darkness will always win. That light is gone and there is no hope. But Jesus has come seeking and saving, gathering the scattered and bringing his sheep under his protection. This is what the author of Hebrews is reminding us when he says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus died so that we might live, and in his death he defeated death, and he defeated the great enemy in Satan delivering all of us who've been oppressed by this lifelong fear of death that we are now free to truly live in Christ. But knowing this, hearing this, reading this, we still find our hearts divided. We still have moments where we're not sure if we can trust Jesus. We're unsure if he really is who he says he is. We hope he is. But can he, can he be that good? Because what we've learned from a young age is that if, that if, it's, if it's good, if it's, it seems too good to be true, then most likely it is too good to be true. And we bring that thought to Jesus when he is the one that breaks that. And he says, no, I am exactly who I say I am. And I am good. And I am merciful. And I am steadfast. And the invitation that he brings before each and every one of us is to step forward in trust, in faith, to see the actions of Jesus, to measure our reactions and understand the implications of accepting or rejecting Jesus. Verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Where's Jesus taking us here? What's what's he saying? He's saying that when it comes to him, there's no neutrality. You're either with him or you're against him. You can't stand in the middle. You cannot ride the fence with Jesus. You either believe that he is savior or you believe that he is crazy. He's either a liar or he is Lord. And making no decision is still making a decision. See, Jesus is constantly pushing us towards a point of, of decision and action to, to follow him. Are you going to accept or reject his invitation to life? That, that's what he's bringing before all of us all of the time. To say yes to Jesus is to yield to him, to trust him. This is the prayer that he taught us that we come and we say, Father, Father, your kingdom, your kingdom come. 
I want your will, your way. That's, that's what we're meaning when we yield to him. That we begin to see him as the good shepherd who has come to seek and to save the lost. Uh, you see again in verse 23, there's, there's this language that gets used. Uh, Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And maybe there's some vague familiarity too of like, that sounds biblical. Well, when it is, it's written in that verse. But you're like, maybe it's in some other spots too. And again, we, we, we ask when we're reading about, where have I heard that before? Where have I heard hints or whispers of that? Because when Jesus is speaking, he is steeped in Scripture. It's coming out, and we don't always recognize it. There's a moment where God was speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. And he was speaking through the prophet Ezekiel against the religious leaders of Ezekiel's day, who had made it all about themselves. They did not seek the good of the people. They sought their own good. They were using their position for their own power and not to come alongside and to comfort and to protect their people. It's a problem that Jesus saw in his own day in the Pharisees, that they were posturing, but they had lost a posture of humility before the Lord. And while we see in in Ezekiel's word, God calls out the false prophets, he also makes it very clear that he will not abandon us. Let me just read these words in Ezekiel 34, 11. They'll be on the screen as well. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, he, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel." I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Ezekiel was speaking the words of God, and God was revealing the time when the good shepherd would come and he would gather the scattered. And Jesus is pointing us to the finger of God is at work in my actions. And those who are not with me are against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. But why has Jesus come to seek and save the lost? He's trying to gather in all who will say yes to him. He is breaking through the darkness and he is giving voice to the voiceless. He is overcoming the enemy. He is showing himself as both Lord and Savior. So in seeing this and knowing his actions, knowing our own reactions to to hearing this, uh, we need to understand the implications. There is no neutral So let us not remain neutral, but let us unite our hearts to fear his name, aligning our lives under the presence and the power and the protection and the perfection of Jesus. 
And what I know is that even if you say yes to him today, your heart is still going to want to divide. It's still going to have pressure that comes against. Those words of Paul are going to become your own as you feel that internal wrestle. And if you try and do it on your own, you will fail. So today, this week, choose Jesus. Choose his way, his will, his word. Again, there's no neutral. And when you feel that civil war raging in your soul, and borrow the words of the psalmist from Psalm 86. Take a picture of this, mark it in your Bible, write it down, and memorize it, and maybe just memorize one line, but remember this, when the war comes in your soul, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord God, with my whole heart, my undivided heart, I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. As we close this morning, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And I want to encourage you in this moment to be quiet before the Lord. To bring your full attention to Jesus that you may find rest for your weary soul. As we sing these songs, as we pray, and maybe you just need someone to come around you and pray for you, we'll have people available for prayer. Or maybe you just need to examine your heart and just see all the different fractures and factions that are forming and say, Lord, I need to, I need to bring this back under you. And one of the ways, uh, really one of the gifts that Jesus has given us to remind ourselves of that, to pause and to remember that, is through the communion table, where we partake of the bread, remembering his, his sacrifice for us, where we partake of the cup with the juice that represents his blood that, that, that covered our debt in full. And so maybe at your own pace, when you're ready, you just need to take of the communion table and just unite your heart to fear his name again and say, I'm saying yes to you. I'm choosing you. Now, Lord, help me. Strengthen me by your spirit to walk in your ways. So I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to respond. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you are the good shepherd who has come seeking to save the lost of which we all are. Lord, whatever excuses we bring this morning before you, would we lay them aside? God, would you search our hearts and know us? And if there's anything in our hearts that we're uh, trying to hide from you or even from ourselves that we know should not be there, would you just take them? Lord, for anyone in this room that needs, needs healing from you, needs restoration from you, needs to experience your mercy anew, would you meet them, God? Lord, as we say yes to you, we know that we will not always get it right, that we will fall, we will falter, we will fail. 
And in those moments, would, would your spirit speak loudest to us that we don't run from you, but we run back to you? To be lifted back up by you, strengthened by you, experience your forgiveness, your wholeness, your peace. And Lord, for anyone in this room who is yet to say yes to you, but wants to, God, would they do so now? Saying, Lord, I I come to you. I yield my life to you. I seek your forgiveness. And I trust in you. That you are Lord, you are Savior. And by your blood, I am redeemed. God, any who pray that prayer, would they experience the power of your spirit, the guarantee of their inheritance, knowing that they are not alone, but you are with them. So God, be with us as we say yes to you in all things. We love you and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, that is our prayer. Just more of you. God, help us to be more aware of you in in all things, in our goings and our comings, in the ordinary moments of our life would we remember that you are there. You are available. And so Jesus, would you unite our hearts to fear your name, to step forward trusting in you, finding life in you, finding confidence in you, finding strength in you, finding assurance in you, finding peace in you, finding grace in you. Jesus, you told us apart from you, we can do nothing. But through you, all things are possible. Help us where we fall short. Help us in our unbelief. Help us every day to say yes to you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Well, as we close this morning, uh, I just want to encourage you. If you need prayer or you just need uh, to talk, there's a few of us that will always be down front. And we'd love to pray with you and alongside you. Uh, But as we leave, may we leave with these words. Uh, Lord, would you teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? And as we run through life, may we fix our eyes on Jesus, trusting that in him is light and life and the darkness does not win. May you know his grace and may you experience his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week.